0: Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host Rob Pickles, here with Coach Connor. Long gone are the days of going out for a workout and having nothing to report to your coach except how it felt. We now live in an era of information overload. We track heart rate, power, speed, distance, body temperature, heart rate variability, sleep, blood glucose, TSS, and a variety of other acronyms. It feels like every month there's a new metric and coaches struggle to keep up with them all. The challenge that faces us is no longer getting enough data, it's how to interpret it into a meaningful way. This is where neural networks come in. They are a sophisticated form of artificial intelligence that learns the way the human brain does. By taking in large amounts of data, they can learn what the data means and provide interpretations. And those interpretations, based on thousands of data points, can be simple, accurate, and highly useful. Pioneering the use of neural networks for training is top coach and mad scientist Alan Cousins, who is leading the way in using science to effectively coach athletes to their peak performance. It was his quest to find better ways to use the data that led him to explore neural networks. Joining Cousins in this episode, we have two highly respected coaches, Ryan Bolton, the coach of Bolton Endurance Sports Training, and Lauren Valley, the owner of Valiant Endurance. We also have two-time cyclocross U.S. national champion Stephen Hyde. So, dump your data into
1: a neural network,
0: and let's see if it recommends that we make you fast.
1: As a cycling coach, it's really easy, even tempting, to focus on the workouts and the training plans. After all, this is the bread and butter of being a coach, but there's much more that affects an athlete's performance. So new this week for Fast Talk Labs, module eight of The Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel unpacks the black box of sports psychology, tapping a diverse group of experts from around the world, including Dr. Andy Kirkland, Julie Emmerman, Rob Griffiths, and Jeff Trosch. By applying the biopsychosocial model to endurance sports performance, these experts show better ways to consider an athlete's stress, how to engage and motivate athletes, and how to help athletes build confidence, resilience, motivation, and enjoyment of their sports. So see what's new in endurance coaching at FastTalkLabs.com. Well, Alan, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. You're kind of a brethren in that we all love talking about the science of training here. And I'm actually a little embarrassed it's taken us this long to get you on the show, but I'm personally really excited. We've got a, what what do you say, a science nerd's delight episode today?
0: I think so, but let's make it delightful for everybody.
1: Uh, You're never any fun. No
0: always the buzzkill, don't want to have fun with the science geeks, want everybody invited to the party. Yeah, no, Alan, definitely. Thank you for being here. Um, I love following you on Twitter. You do a great job of sharing some information there and engaging with people. And so I think it's a real treat that we're able to, uh, engage with you here and, and, and talk about neural networks, you know, tell us a little bit kind of about yourself and how did you end up even working with this field?
2: Yeah, it's been a pretty, uh, circuitous sort of, uh, sort of route to, to where I am now. Um, I am Australian, so I started my uh, my studies a little over thirty years ago now, back in uh, back in Sydney, Australia. Did a sports science degree, and through that, or through the master's program, I was able to get a gig working with the Australian swim team, and uh, that was at the Australian Institute of Sport. So they were gearing up for the uh, the ninety six Olympic Games. And that was sort of my first introduction to, uh, I guess, applied sports science, you know, really seeing how sports science can be integrated at, at the highest performance levels. And I, uh, I was with, with those guys all the way through to, uh, to the Games, and that was awesome. And after that, I... Ended up moving to the U.S. a couple of years after that. I worked in a few uh, swim programs in Australia and then decided that a move might be nice. So I was in Florida for a while there and kind of accidentally got, got more involved in triathlon through one of the places that I was working at the time. And so I figured I'd better get certified and all that good stuff in the US. And during the certification, there was uh, one of the, one of the presenters was a guy by the name of Gear Fisher. And this was right around the time that Training Peaks was just getting started, so it was uh, a little bit of a pitch, I guess, on on his part, you know, to, to these new triathlon coaches that uh, we we should start kind of getting a little bit more uh, tech savvy with the approaches that we were using and it's been really interesting to see how the whole paradigm has shifted since then you know and, and remote coaching and coaching with software has really become sort of the standard I think I think it's how most triathlon coaches these days sort of make a living spending a lot of time in front of a computer but I it wasn't long that I was sort of getting into that and learning about it that there were questions that I had and things that I wanted to do that weren't really being answered by the software. So I thought, I've always wanted to learn to code, so I just kind of started picking up some some random stuff and started uh, you know writing some scripts that plugged into Training Peaks and plugged into some of the other software that I was using. And really, I guess I've, I've been doing that in various iterations uh, ever since. And through that developed an interest in the predictive side of things. You know, we have all of this yummy data. What can we do with it in terms of understanding athletes better and in terms of predicting athletes' performances based on the data? So, yeah, I guess that's what I'm still doing to this day.
1: I actually found this really fascinating when I was reading your articles on the topic and it gets at something that we've addressed on the show without really having an answer, which is a lot of these models that we use, like TSS, CTL, they require you to, or a coach or somebody to say, well, if this happens, then that. And it's very hard to program all the various if-ands, like what if you don't get a good night of sleep? What happens if you argue with your spouse? All these things can affect your training, But you can't really build those into a model. So the issue that you have with something like a CTL model is it's actually quite simple. It can't factor in all those variables. And we've brought that up, the fact that it's got some use to it. But don't think that if it says you're 110, that means your fitness is going to be this. It's just not that accurate. The neural networks, what I found really fascinating, I know you're really going to dive into this, is... It's basically training a computer to learn the way a human mind learns. And then you can put all these inputs in. You can put all these different factors in and have it figure out how they all weight, how they all impact your training and come up with a much better model of here's where you're actually at. Is that a fairly accurate, I hope, one, two-minute description?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's... One thing that separates machine learning from sort of our traditional approach to coming up with with an answer to a question, and and that is in in the traditional approach, you have your inputs and you have your rules or your formula and you get this output based upon whatever your formula or whatever your rules of thumb are at the time. Whereas with, with machine learning, we have the inputs and we have outputs that we know, and then we ask the computer to come up with its own formula. An example I like to use, and hopefully an example that resonates with the listeners, if we wanted to get the power output of a cyclist riding at a certain speed up a hill, we could use physics, right? We know the speed, we know the incline, we know gravity, we we know all of those various sort of inputs that we need to come up with a, a physics equation that could tell us what the power of the cyclist is likely to be. That, that would be one approach. Another approach would be we could just get this group of cyclists of all different sizes and shapes and on different bikes to ride up the same hill and we could get their power output at the top and then we could feed that information to a computer and have it come up with the, the physics rules itself. Have it come up with the relationships that matter. You know, if, if a rider's is this much heavier, what, what is it going to do to his power and, and those sorts of things. So it's really two totally different approaches to the, the same way of figuring something out.
1: Coach Ryan Bolton talked with us about this issue that we live in an age of information overload but have limited ability to interpret it. Let's hear what he has to say.
0: Ryan with the the training and the tracking tools that are available to athletes is there something missing or is there room for technology to help you as a coach do a better job knowing exactly how that athlete is feeling exactly what you should be writing ultimately to coach the athlete better is there room for technology
3: Yeah I think there's I mean there's a ton of room for technology when you know, coaching athletes or being a better coach for athletes and helping athletes become more successful. I do think we're in this information age right now where we're getting so much and some of it is helpful and some of it's not. And I think that the biggest and some of the hardest part of it is actually finding what is useful, what's effective, and then if it is how to use it properly. There's a lot of talk around different monitors, et cetera, et cetera, but and I think some of them are highly effective and then other ones aren't. And you know, maybe fads and everything. So I think that just as a coach digesting what is out there and what can be used and then its efficacy and then how to use it properly, it becomes difficult. And I mean, you could spend eight hours a day on one athlete with a lot of this stuff. So I think as, as a coach too, is monitoring, you know, what is most effective and how to best use it and how to be most efficient with it while also not forgetting kind of the key coaching component of it. And teaching an athlete to listen to their body and not rely on the technology as much as well. So there's kind of an art here and a balance with it as well. And that's really one of the difficulties with the
0: TSS model that we're working with now, right? We're trying to define exactly what that equation is, just like we are with our equations of motion. But it's also being done, Trevor, as you alluded to, in a very, very simple manner. We're taking exactly two factors, time and intensity, and we're multiplying them together. And that probably doesn't explain just like that equation of motion can be really sort of complex with aerodynamics and weight and rolling resistance. Those two factors alone probably never, ever able to really give us the full picture of what's happening inside the athlete so that a coach actionably can make a decision that ultimately helps that athlete reach a better performance, which is the end goal, right? It's not about the metrics. It's about using those metrics.
1: And Alan, you made a a really good point in one of your articles that the sense is just time and intensity. It creates a linear equation. It basically says the more time or the more intensity you do, the, the fitter you're going to be. It never says at a certain point, this is going to cook you. This is going to kill you. So Alan, to throw that back to you as a coach, what made you finally say... TSS, CTL is just not cutting it for me. It's not doing what I need it to do for my athletes.
2: Yeah, I think I think it was exactly what you said, you know, that really the TSS approach just brings you to a more is always better approach, you know, and uh, it basically says that if you throw more load at the athlete, that their performance is going to improve. And beyond that, as you, as you also said, it suggests that their performance is going to improve linearly. So... If I go from a CTL of 50 to 60, I should theoretically improve the same amount if I go from a CTL of 150 to 160. And we, we all know that that's, that's not the case, you know. So it, it really doesn't take too long in dealing with this and trying to trying to use it as a performance predictor before you realize there's some things that just don't work in that linear model. So yeah, we, we definitely need to do better. And, you know, initially that was just a, a case of trying some different types of models, you know, trying some exponentially fit models, trying some, some logarithmic models, and just basically trying to incorporate some of these things that we know about the way the body works. You know, that we, we know there's diminishing returns. We know that you don't get the same improvement if you're already super duper fit as if you're this novice who's just starting a program off the couch, you know, so I think that was really the impetus to to start looking for some models that can do some of these patterns that we know exist in the real world.
0: And I do want to say there is merit and value to TSS. I, I almost mm-hmm. view it like kind of training by heart rate, right? Some people will say, oh, well, heart rate doesn't give you the full picture and you have to use power and all of these things. But heart rate was really great for a lot of people for a very long time. And TSS was also very effective. But, you know, Alan, as you're saying, we're learning more about the body. Research has come out. We have more understanding. And so maybe we are at this inflection point where it's time that the model grows just like our knowledge.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning, you know, they just didn't have, when we when we were talking about Bannister, this was back in the early 90s, and they really didn't have the algorithms and they didn't have the computing power to deal with a lot more variables, you know? So it was a measure of necessity that we had to wrap a whole bunch of stuff up into this, this one input measure. But obviously now the situation's very different and we have all of these fantastic uh, algorithms that we can use that are really complicated and can accommodate a whole lot of variables that we can throw into the, uh, throw into the equation, but we just haven't really made that, that leap to using them in this, in this context of uh, predicting sports performance.
1: Oh, so that's what I would ask you. So you, you came to the realization that, that CTL, there, there might be some value to it, but it's got a lot of shortcomings. So, what made you then jump to, and maybe this is why you're nicknamed the Mad Scientist, to saying, "Let's use the most sophisticated AI system in existence to to solve this problem."
2: Yeah, I mean that certainly wasn't the uh, wasn't the initial thing. You know, initially I was just looking for anything that really fit fit the data, and as it seems to happen with me, I start on one thing and then just buy a book and then buy another book and kind of kind of just go further and further down the rabbit hole and think about the way that some of these new super duper algorithms could could be applied to this domain you know but i think neural networks do have a lot of advantages in the fact that they can really describe any relationship you know and we, we talked about diminishing returns being one thing that we might see as coaches you know we, we start an athlete with a certain load ramp and they improve a certain amount but then that amount changes with with another load ramp but another pattern we might see is for a lot of athletes when we hit a certain load it's not just diminishing but it actually reverses so we want a model that can also do sort of like an inverted u you know where there's this sweet spot of load for a particular athlete and if we go beyond that oftentimes the performance actually gets worse, you know, if the athlete doesn't have enough space within their life or uh, is just kind of capped out in terms of their their adaptive ability at that point, you know. So I think we, we do need a complex model that can describe a lot of different relationships depending upon the particular athlete and the particular level that we encounter.
0: And Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, and something that almost leads this to be a really great and elegant solution is that with a neural network, you don't have to know everything, right? That if you define some inputs, then it's the machine learning that ultimately sort of creates the algorithm or the equation, kind of in a different word, as opposed to you yourself having to figure out every little component that goes into that. Is this important? Is this not important? that's what the iterative process in this neural network automatically does.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's certainly the uh, the way that the more complex networks are, are heading. You, you know, you really don't want to, uh, you really don't need to do much kind of initial data processing. You just feed it as much data as you can possibly give it. And, uh, and you know, a, a complex network can really, drill down and see which parts of that data are important to the end end result you know in our case athletic performance and you know in in the beginning we didn't have a lot of data you know my first power meter I think I uh, was an SRM you know way back when and we had these these kind of single data files that you really uh, you know you you couldn't do much with in terms of uh, in terms of drilling down and getting long-term patterns from or anything like that but But nowadays we we do, you know, I think pretty much every athlete has a whole lot of data sitting in their training picks account or, uh, you know, on on their computer in one way or another. And it's really a, a case of making use of that data to determine what's important for that athlete.
1: Well, you raised that, that we're actually living in an era now of data overload. We collect so much data on each athlete that for a coach to take that data and read it, and to try to make sense of it, I mean, it's it's be an all-day job on, on a single athlete. And it's actually hard for the coach to look at all of it and come to any conclusions about the athlete. And what you were saying is these neural networks have this amazing ability to, to process all that information, process all that data and go, here's what it means. And down to simple things like, you should be in bed today. Or you're actually doing really well, you could actually train harder today but it gets it down to those simple, actionable recommendations. This information overload we have right now is frustrating many coaches as we discuss with Lauren Valley. Let's hear
2: from her.
4: The coach-athlete experience at the heart of it is a relationship that I don't think AI could deconstruct. And so I don't think that there is a metric that is able to go into my athlete's body physiology and say, this is what Robbie needs this week. My job as a coach is to take the verbal information, the nonverbal information, meaning body language, tone of voice, energy level, that you can just feel being in a room with someone or being on video with someone or talking to somebody on the phone. There's all sorts of information that, that we as humans can gather. And I think I love coaching by perceived exertion because it forces not only the athlete, but me to be in communication in a way that if I'm just using you know, how, how many minutes did you spend in zone two? How well did you follow the the prescription? That's very, to me, sterile. Number one, it doesn't develop the athlete's sense of themselves in an embodied way and how to deal with tough days, easy days. And so for me, yeah, I would prefer that we got rid of all data and we just really focused on perceived exertion and kept things simple because, Again, science is awesome, and it underpins all of the coaching work that I do, but you know, a metric is not always going to dictate what I'm going to do for an athlete, what that athlete needs on the day will.
0: I want to share an example of kind of a non-endemic example of how a neural network works that really made sense for me, and, and I am not very well-versed in, in this topic, right? And so I think Trevor and I both had our homework that we had to do before this, and so I was perusing the IBM website and uh, this is the example that they gave. It was, let's think of using a neural network to decide if we want to have pizza for dinner, right? There are some basic inputs and the neural network is describing or trying to take into account, Trevor, as you had said before, the process Robert, that you go through.
1: I gotta stop. You always want to have pizza for dinner. <laughs> it's an easy answer.
0: Well, well <laughs> don't hear well, the neural
1: network for that one. Well,
0: well, <laughs> well, there you go. That's what Trevor's algorithm always tells him. His weighting is different. You know, but what what questions do you ask yourself? Is ordering out gonna save me time? Is ordering out going to be a healthy alternative for me? Is it going to save me money? Right. These are the things that we decide every single time we make this decision. You know, and, and then the output comes from that. Well, um, we're not gonna make dinner tonight. We're gonna to get all the toppings, which is not healthy because pepperoni is bad for you, you know, and but we're only gonna get one slice, so it's gonna be cheap. All of these things, all of these decisions. And there's a hundred million different decisions or inputs that we could make in here, right? And that's where the complexity comes from. But what's really interesting about this neural network thing is that we can decide which is more or less important. And that's where this nonlinear side of things come from. With, With our chronic training load, we said, hey, it's intensity times volume. It's very linear. One doesn't count more than the other. But in the neural network, we can say, you know what, Saving time is by far the most important to me, and eating salty foods is the second most. And so, yeah, the pizza wins out every time because it's always going to satisfy those criteria that's important to us. But that's really where the power of this comes from. From a few simple inputs and a little bit of waiting. we can ultimately make really complex decisions just like the human brain does. We can now feed that into a machine and let it ultimately do more computations than we'd ever be able to do ourselves.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's really the key, you know, is that with the neural network, the amount of factors that it can weigh are so far beyond what, what we can do consciously. And, you know, it, it, a lot of, uh, I guess, old school coaching is based on these sort of gut feels, you know, things that we might have seen these patterns that sort of uh, they register. You know, we see it again and it's it's a pattern that does something to our nervous system, so we roll with that. But a neural network does a very similar thing. It's just able to do those things much more systematically and to weigh each of the variables in a way that truly leads to the best output based on the inputs that you give it.
1: Let's hear from ex-pro Stephen Hyde, who talked with us about this issue of lots of great data, but limited ability to interpret it.
5: I think that what we have right now in terms of of tools, in terms of interface, works really well in, in getting some kind of communication across, some direction of communication across. But does it tell the whole story? I don't think so. There's so much left off the table when we're just looking at metrics. And that's whether that's, you know, like TSS, TSB if we're looking at uh, HRV acronym, acronym charts across the board, I think that like, we can look at those things in in isolation and we can see obvious trends, but we're, we're taking the human out of it all. And we're looking at it all under this like very, very, very tight microscope. And in that way, I think we're always going to miss the target. I have not found a tool necessarily that like quantifies all of the numbers that come from all of the gadgets that we have hooked up with how an athlete is feeling and what's going to happen next with them. If we had some wild ability to predict the future, predict where someone's headspace is going to be, then I think we're really on to something. But for right now, I mean, communication is my my best tool. It's asking questions of like, yeah, that workout was great but how are you feeling? Did you have a positive outcome from that? And like, where do you think this training should go? Yeah, you you didn't sleep very well, but do you feel like that's going to lose this race for you? Or you slept great, Just, do you feel like you're going to win the race now? There's a lot left to be desired, I think.
0: Ah, uh, November. The air is crisp, the leaves are falling, and I get to take a break from riding my bike. Now is a great time of year to rest and reflect on the past season. Visit Fast Talk Labs and take a look at our pathways on recovery and data analysis. These two in-depth guides can help you get the most from your off-season. See more at FastTalkLabs.com slash pathways. You know, Alan, I'd love to steer this conversation toward you're someone who has actually been doing this, right? And and take this conversation out of the theoretical and really talk about some of the practical applications. How have you specifically implemented this with with some of your athletes?
2: Yeah, so, uh, you know, going back to kind of that whole process of, of making decisions and hopefully making, you know, better decisions than what other coaches are making, uh, I do utilize these neural networks to run predictions. So, rather than kind of making the the call in my head, are we going to do an interval workout today? Because my gut says that this athlete's ready for an interval workout. I have these neural networks set up that actually run these algorithms uh, forward to predict what will happen if if we do this and they predict it in, in two ways. One is, will it make the athlete better? So is, is the predicted performance likely to be better? And the other one is, will it make the athlete excessively fatigued or at, at risk of injury or illness? So I'm constantly running these two networks against each other to come up with, okay, well, what, what looks like a good decision today based on something that will make the athlete better without exceeding this given fatigue threshold that I that I've given the network.
0: And Alan, if I remember right from from your prolific tweeting and your writing, these models were trained with historical data from these specific athletes, right? They've been in this situation before. They've had various training loads and inputs and and then you were able to see yes, their performance improved or it didn't improve. When you create this model, is it all athletes training one model that then gets applied to, again, all athletes? Or is this Rob Pickles as an athlete has his model based on his historical data. Trevor Connor as an athlete, has his model, so on and so forth.
2: Yeah. One, one of the neat things about neural networks is that you can incorporate both of those things because the networks have layers. So they have multiple levels to them. You can have a, a group model for that's been trained on a whole bunch of people for the first couple of layers of the network, which gives kind of a general sense of what's likely to happen. And then for the, the final layer or the, the second second to last layer, you can have data that's specific to the athlete. So depending on how much data we have to work with, we, we could have a model that is primarily coming from the group if it's an athlete that doesn't have a lot of data, or we could have a model that's, that's very tailored to an athlete if there's someone who comes with, you know, 10 years of training pics files and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's one of the really cool aspects of, of uh, neural networks is this transfer learning, it's called, where you can, you can tweak group models to better serve individuals.
1: I'm wondering, is there a danger as you're describing all these different layers and these different inputs? Is there a danger of over analysis? Can you get too complex?
2: There's definitely a danger of overfitting. So, overfitting is kind of the biggest problem with these neural networks. So, n- neural networks, as I said, are wonderful at approximating any function. You know, they can approximate diminishing returns, they can approximate your your novice who improves almost linearly no matter what. They can approximate the overtrained athlete who actually gets worse as the, as the load goes up. But because they have so much flexibility, they can start to see patterns there that aren't really there because they, they're just fitting to the training data that we give them. So the trick with these complicated models is not to get too excited when we see that it's fitting the training data perfectly, but to actually test it on data that it hasn't seen and base how excited we are on how it does on, on that test data. So I think that's, that's the big watch out, you know, and if, if you don't have a lot of data, then oftentimes because this model is so complex, it won't perform as well as a, as a simple model. So it's, yeah, it's definitely something to keep an eye on and make sure that you're not overfitting the model to the, to the one athlete.
0: Another question that sort of follows up with that that I've been wondering is how much data is needed, both in terms of, say, historical length of data, but also, say, number of inputs. Let's just say that you only have power. Is that enough? Or do we need power and heart rate or do we need power and heart rate and how the athlete fell and power and heart rate and heart rate variability at what point is it too much or not enough data for the neural network?
2: Yeah, those two, two things kind of weigh against each other. So if we have, if we have a whole lot of data from an athlete, then we can use a whole lot of parameters as well. And that's, that's the cool situation. You know, when we have, we have an athlete that comes in with a bunch of data and from all different channels. They've got heart rate data, they've got heart rate variability data, they've got their power data. Maybe they have temperature data, now that the core is coming out with some of that sort of stuff as well. So when we have the luxury of a lot of data, we can throw a lot of parameters into the model and it won't overfit. It will come out with with a a good, useful uh, model. If on the other hand we don't have a lot of data and we try to incorporate a whole lot of parameters, then the model will will overfit, and when we when we test it on the test set, it won't give us very good model performance. So that's something you always have to have to kind of weigh up, and uh, you know make sure that you're not you're not getting too greedy with how many things that you want to include, depending on how much data you have.
0: Yeah, and Alan, real quick, you use the, the term parameters a couple times. Can we just sort of clearly define exactly what that is? Because I think that I know, but I want to make sure.
2: Yeah, so the, these are the input features. So if we if we have a model that we want to predict performance and we give it the athlete's heart rate variability, that would be one parameter or one feature, and we give it how much training load it did yesterday, that would be another parameter or feature. So those are sort of the the inputs to the to the model
0: okay great so that that is what I thought and then there is a weighting that gets applied to those as well, correct is that something that you're doing manually or is that something that the neural network creates through the process?
2: yeah that that's something that, that the network does does all on its own and that's perfect that's really the, <laughs> the magic of that's the magic of these things you know we we as coaches might have certain ideas of how things should be weighted and then you give the network the data and it comes back with a completely different yeah different analysis of what should be weighted and and what shouldn't be weighted highly so it's uh that's really what made neural networks take off was in the beginning, there wasn't a way to tweak these these weights. So, you know, the AI researchers worked out a way to to build a network and to build the predictive network. But if an output was wrong, they had to tweak all of these things manually to try to make it make it more right. And obviously, that's not not a practical thing to do in in any sort of real world context. But uh, this this guy named Jeff Hinton came up with applying what's called back propagation to the network. So in the case of the beginning of a neural network it just makes these random predictions, right? It it just comes up with these weights and it just has no rhyme or rhythm to to why it's applying weights to different nodes and it comes up with a prediction and depending on how wrong that prediction is from the the known Uh, output from the truth it goes back through each layer and each node of the network and just tweaks each node to make the prediction a little bit less wrong and that's that's the backstage so now it's got a network that's a little bit better and it just repeats that over and over again so it makes a forward pass figures out how off the network is from the truth goes back through it through this back propagation tweaks all the little parameters a little bit more and by the end of things you know it's like tuning a a guitar by the end of things you've you've got something that actually uh sounds pretty good and, and works pretty well
1: so i love the example you used in one of your articles which is you you feed into one of these neural networks a bunch of pictures and have it try to figure out which ones are cats And you make no effort whatsoever to teach the neural network what a cat is. It's just going to randomly pick. And then you go, okay, that's a tree. You're way off on that one. That's a dog. You might be close. And then it goes back and adjusts its weighting. And it keeps doing this and doing this until it can very accurately say, that picture's a cat, that picture isn't. But it learns it on its own. You don't teach it. Yeah,
2: it figures it all out. So if you... If you look at, and some of these things you can visualize with different networks, if you look at what it considers important in the different nodes, you might get, okay, here's a pointy ear node, you know, so if, if this thing has pointy ears, that node lights up and it's likely to be a cat. Here's a a, a snub nose face uh, node, you know, here's a, uh, here's a long tail node and you get all of these things that the network has figured out are important to determining if something is a, is a cat or not. The same thing in our case, uh, maybe one node is zone one training and one node is zone two training, and it so it figures out okay when this athlete, when the zone one node lights up, he does well. When with this with this athlete, when the zone three node lights up, he does he does better, and uh, yeah, similar sort of thing.
1: And What's neat is you're not telling it what's important; it can figure out what's important. So it might discover things you didn't know, like for example hey, this athlete doesn't train well when they go out in the morning. They train well when they go out in the afternoon, if, if that Ooh. happens to be one of the inputs. But it can be quite creative and unique in figuring out what actually is an influence on the athlete.
2: Exactly. That I mean, that's the fun thing. You know, once you have the network, if you have enough data from that athlete, you can really throw in whatever parameter you want you can see if it, if it improves the output or not. And... Uh, Sometimes there are things, as you said, that you wouldn't really consider as a coach. It's just kind of, you know, things that uh, don't necessarily uh, line up with what, what should be important, uh, you know, based on what, what you learned in school. But the network is actually teaching you some things that, that we might not have known.
0: I think this is really interesting. And we oftentimes talk about how coaching can actually lead researchers in terms of knowledge. And this is an area that I think we really might be able to unlock some knowledge and some information because one of the criticisms, and I fully understand why it is, but one of the criticisms of research is that it's essentially performed in a vacuum, right? You're trying to limit as many variables as possible so that you can really see the signal within that noise and answer the question, does training in the morning or the afternoon lead to improved gains? But what that does is it might answer that question, but it takes out all of the other variables that would go into making that practical or some of the things that are changing or that just aren't going to happen in the athlete's life. And in the real practical world situation, well, the athlete stress goes up when they train in the morning because they're trying to get to work and their kids are crying and whatever else, so their adaptation is lower even though when you remove everything else, the, the research paper said it was better.
2: Yeah, I, I mean I think that, that machine learning on the whole has a lot to offer just by virtue of the fact that you don't need to control as much. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're not dealing with parametric methods where we need to know everything that's going on in order to come up with a valid conclusion. We can we can use the power of the, the data that we have and we can use some of these non-parametric bendy approaches to better answer some of these questions of how do these things combine together to make a conclusion, you know, and there's only so much you can do when you control every variable because that doesn't happen in the real world. You know, it's, it's not a lab situation where we have complete control over is the athlete sleeping from, you know, 10 at night till 6 in the morning every day? That That's not something that we can control. It's something that we have to deal with. And we have to see when, the, when this changes, how do the other things, how do the other parameters that we're interested in change as well? And I think machine learning offers a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of advantage over traditional statistical methods when it comes to that.
1: So I'm actually going to reference an episode that we did a while ago on the, the Exert software with its founder. But we talked about machine learning in that episode. And Armando said that there, there's these stages that we're seeing in, in how we address the data. And I think you've talked about this as well, that right now we live in a descriptive era, meaning your training software gives you a picture of where you are currently at. It describes where you are. But doesn't go beyond that. the The next step is predictive, so it does. The, you know, if you train this way, you should end up here. If you train that way, you should end up there. And the ultimate level is prescriptive, which it sounds like the, these neural networks get into, which is it takes in all this information and says, "Here's what you should be doing right now." So the question I have for you: If the, these neural networks are proving very effective at this, Is this eliminating the coach? Is there still a role for the coach? Only
0: if they're a computer programmer?
2: I think there's a a leap between knowing what the right action is and, and taking that right action. You know, so when I think back to kind of phase one of my coaching career at the Institute of Sport and being on deck with the athletes... The prescription side of things was was something that the coaches were were obviously doing as, as part of their time there. They spent a lot of time in their office, kind of coming up with with the training plan. But then there was the cultural aspect of actually getting the athletes to do the plan and to kind of set the tone for the, for the environment as well. And I think I'm hoping, and you know, I'm hopeful that the more that we can delegate to the machines in terms of the actual kind of, you know, if this, then that, that we can start to get some of that back in coaching and we can start to get more of a humanistic approach to uh, to coaching, which I think is is really really lacking and something that the, the remote coaching has is, is kind of taken away from. Um, and I, I think there'll always be a role for that because ultimately, There's something special about putting together an environment of excellence and being there and being present in that environment of excellence. And I think that the more that we can devote our time to that and the less that we can devote our time to crunching numbers, the better we will be as coaches.
0: I'd love to use that to segue into my next question, and that's, Alan, is there a situation or a time where the neural network is just wrong. Let's say garbage in, garbage out. Does that happen with neural networks? Is there a case where, yeah, the neural network's not to be trusted or you can make a mistake? Or or do these things sort of always lead to perfection like people kind of assume computer and technology does?
2: No, there, I mean, there are, there are definitely problems. Going back to the, the example of Go with the reinforcement learning, one of the researchers said that every so often in the game, the computer will hallucinate a completely different scenario to what's actually what's actually playing out. And the reality is that because we're coming up with these kind of approximations of different states, you know, like the, we see one particular position on the board and it's similar to what we might have seen before, so we make these leaps, it leaves some wiggle room in there for the machine to, to get it very wrong. So that there's definitely situations where because a machine hasn't seen this particular thing often enough or it hasn't dealt with this particular scenario before, that it will come up with some very odd predictions or very odd recommendations if we're if we're moving into sort of a a prescriptive approach. So at, at the moment, there's definitely a need for there to be a, a driver in the car, sort of thing, as well. I, I wouldn't trust the machine to just uh, go off, and trust an athlete to do every single thing that the machine said, because it, it it could kill someone if it uh, <laughs> if, if it gave the the wrong advice on on one of those uh, one of those leaps.
0: Yeah, Alan, as you were just explaining that, it it jogged another question for me, which is, if we look at aerodynamic bikes, if we look at, say, Formula One cars, oftentimes the solutions end up being very, very similar to each other because it's the same program that's kind of creating this aerodynamic optimization. If we take that concept, does that happen with neural networks? If 10 people set out and they tried to make the neural network that we're talking about does that spit out 10 very, very, very similar, if not identical, answers? Or is that 10 very unique answers, either because maybe some of the inputs or the the je ne sais quoi of the person that was uh, programming it?
2: Yeah, I uh, I think there's quite a lot of differences depending on the physiology of the athlete more than anything else. So the things that are important, the inputs, I think would probably similar you know it's important to know the various components of the training it's important to know how much volume the athlete is doing in each intensity zone it's important to know how much they're sleeping you know all of these sorts of features that we feed the network but there's definitely differences in what the network spits out as the optimal course of action for different athletes so I've talked before about volume responders and intensity responders, and that's something that these networks are really good at distinguishing between. You know, So you might get, for one athlete, that zone one node lights up really, really strongly as something that's very important to performance, whereas for another athlete, you might get the, the zone three or four node lights up as something that's very, very important to, to their performance. So I think the... The general architecture and the general uh, features of the network are similar, but the, the the way that the different neurons light up and the the output that it provides is quite different for different athletes.
1: It sounds like it's going to be very effective at, at identifying outliers. So this goes back, you know, in all scientific studies, it's always the, the law of the bell-shaped curve. You're looking for the mean, but there are people who are on the far edges of those bell-shaped curves, and if they read that study and follow its advice, it's actually not going to help them very much. It seems like this would be very good at saying, hey, you're not responding the way you should be or the way most people are. There's something different about you. It could potentially start identifying what, what actually works for them. Yeah, it's that you're Canadian. Well, that's always it.
2: Yeah, I I think that's that's the advantage. You know, we, we you think about what happens in a study and you think about the type of results that you see and you see a, a scatter plot and you see a straight line that goes through the scatter plot and if you're on that straight line that that's great but with these more complex models it doesn't have to be a straight line it can be a wavy line dependent on where you are on different different features you know and that wavy line can come very very close to your particular specifics as an athlete and that's where these things really shine. And I think it's super important, obviously, you know, because we we are quite different as individuals where, you know, we have different muscle fiber types, we have different anatomies, different height, different weight. You know, there's all of these things that come into into play in determining what the optimal action for an athlete is. And, uh, yeah, I I think there's huge advantage in in individualizing things uh, that, that come from this approach.
0: Moving on, you know, I know nothing about programming. Trevor, do you? You're kind of a computer guy. Used to be. You have you have a video game system at your house. That's, like, closer to computer programming than I have. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How does somebody, you know, I don't even know, like, what, what language is this? Like, is this C++? I'll pull that one out of thin air.
2: No, the, the easiest uh, way to get involved in this is definitely through Python. Python is kind of the... Uh, machine learning language de jour of the of the day sort of thing if, if you are interested in machine learning then you're definitely going to find it easier with with python just because there's a whole lot of libraries that have already been written around machine learning so it it's super i mean it really is dead easy in in 20 lines of code you can you can build a model if you're using python just because a lot of smart people have already written all the hard code and you just have to sort of uh import it and plug and play but yeah definitely recommend getting started with python and uh you know really once you pass kind of the the basic levels of sort of learning how to structure code within python and those those basic things it's it's not a not a big leap to start playing with machine learning it's uh, you know as i said it's really just you put a line of code in saying what you want the layer of the network, how many how many nodes you want it to have, and you you put a layer in saying what the output looks like, and it really does the rest. And it's really then just a matter of sort of trying different things and fiddling and seeing what scores well and what doesn't score well. And uh, it's yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun.
0: So what you're saying is I should just watch a YouTube video.
2: I uh, wouldn't take too long. I, 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 I didn't take that route. I mean, I bought some books and things, but I'm I'm sure in this day and age, there's probably some pretty good ones out there. Are you aware of anybody
1: who's building training software right now that's incorporating neural networks?
2: Uh, I, I was involved with a startup that was was doing that, but uh, since I left, I really don't know what they're doing with with their software. I, I don't think that they were going that same route, just because it's hard to implement on a commercial scale. But yeah, I, I not that I'm aware of. You know, I think uh, I think that that's the chat. The challenge is that it's very easy to come up with a basic if then software you know that you don't have to train on the individual you don't have to do any of these things that cost a little bit of money and make things a little bit more complex and most people at the current stage don't really know the difference you know they could the company could say we're doing some fancy things. We have all these algorithms. When really it could just be five lines of code and a bunch of if-then statements, you know. So I, I think there's there's an opportunity there for uh, to to do things a little bit more seriously. But I'm not sure not sure it's really going to get going until people are like this machine learning stuff is really cool.
1: Well, Alan, we're getting to the end of the episode here, and you're a first timer on the show, so I'll explain this to you. We finish with one-minute take-homes, which is basically you have one minute to summarize the the most pertinent points to our listeners or give that one single message that you really want everybody to take home from this. So we'll start with you. Let me know if you need a second to think about it. Okay, I'm good. Then take it away. You have one minute. Nobody's timing you. Except we are so go
2: quick. <laughs> I always want to, want to bring a neural network in to help me uh, summarize. Uh, there all you the go. What, what should I important.
1: say now?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that uh, we we really hit on the importance of the importance of simplicity and the challenges that we're facing right now with a whole lot of data and coaches being expected to process it. Um, so we, we need something to help us with that. And I think computers can can do a really, really good job at weighing all of these variables and, and helping us to determine what's important. So I think that's that's step one. Something has has to give from the the current uh, the current paradigm that we're in, where coaches are just expected to have all of this this stuff in their heads. And the other really key point I think is the importance of the individual and rules can only describe so much and they can only apply to so many people. And it's just not fair and it's not good coaching to those outliers, the people who are a little bit different from the norm, to try to fit them to to the scatter chart with that that single line. You know, that there's enough individual difference out there that we really need something that helps us better identify these athletes as individuals. And I think those two areas are where computers and neural networks specifically can really help.
0: Nice. For me, I think I've felt for a long time that the current descriptors that we have aren't doing the complete job and that there's something out there on the table. And this really feels like a means to learn more about people, to understand, to take in all of the parameters that I, man, I could list 100 on, on the whiteboard and not be able to think about all of them. This is a means for us to be able to do that. But I also know my limitations and I know that I am not the person to do this. And so I'm really happy that there are people like Alan and and listeners that are out there listening to this right now who are hopefully inspired. But I know that I'm really excited for the day that this problem is solved and, and that potentially this is the solution. And, you know, maybe it might be difficult to, to be uh, commercial ready. And maybe that's why we haven't seen it, but I'm positive that at some point in the future, we'll be able to solve those problems too. And this, this could really unlock a big aspect of coaching, not replace coaching, but help coaches coach better. I think that's really, really interesting to
1: me. So I've got two take homes. First one is if we ever get that commercial version I guarantee you it's going to discover that the biggest factor in my performance is having pizza, <laughs> which is another reason why I want pizza for no, dinner. No, no,
0: It's the two Ps. It's the pizza and the poutine.
1: Ooh. If you survive the heart attack, you can perform <laughs>
0: great. Yep.
1: No, I mean, my, my take home is, I, I, I'm going to go back to that analogy just a little bit, which is, we have seen a whole lot of athletes who have gotten caught up in the data trap. And the more data they take in, the more data they read, the, the better they're going to perform. And that to me has always been the trying to think as many moves ahead as possible approach. And I love this discussion of the neural networks because that's modeled after the human brain. And that's how our brain is designed to function is to more recognize the situation and be able to figure out what's what's the best path forward. And that is why we've on the show tried to recommend to people, don't undervalue things like RPE, don't undervalue recognizing how you feel, knowing when you should skip on a workout and not just trust the data. Look at your TSS and go, well, my TSS is this, and my CTL and ATL are this, so I should work out today, even though I'm dragging my feet. Mm-hmm. And I think when we can actually have a computer able to do this, think the way a human brain thinks, take in all that data that we're trying to read ourselves and recognize those situations, recognize the, the best path forward. I think then we're going to get into a really exciting age of, uh, of how to effectively train and make the right decisions. Well, Alan, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Of course, Thank you, guys. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join to become a part of our education and coaching community. For Alan Cousins, Ryan Bolton, Stephen Hyde, Lauren Valley, and
5: Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.